Oh, kind and loving Father, I thank you so much for the gift of life. Thank you, Lord, for putting a hunger and a thirst within us to want to know the truth because it's the truth that sets us free. And Lord, as we get into our topic today, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would fill this place, fill our hearts and minds. Lord, guide us, stir us, help us to understand the truth because it's the truth that sets us free. And Lord, we want to fall in love with the truth. We ask you to help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, hopefully you were here on Thursday night and you remember that we talked about those events that are going to occur at the second coming of Christ. And we specifically talked about what is going to happen with the righteous but today I want to talk to you about what's going to happen to the wicked at that coming of Christ. And so I'd like you to notice what it says in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. It says, And the kings of earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And so here we see a picture uh, quite opposite of what we saw on Thursday night. There are going to be those who are right with God, those who are going to be raised from the dead who had died in Christ, and they're going to be very excited to see the coming of the Lord. But now we see this other group of people who are crying out to the rocks for them to fall on them and to hide them from the face of Jesus. You'll remember that we read on Thursday night, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 10. Let me just read that to you again. It says, And to give to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day. I'd like you to notice, though, too, that Revelation chapter 19, verse 17 through 21, says something very similar. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. 
And so we see here at this second coming of Jesus, we read earlier that He's coming in the clouds of heaven, but now we see that He also at some point is going to be sitting on a horse. And so that one that was described there is none other than Jesus Christ. And the sword is the Word of God that comes from His mouth and slays the wicked who are alive at that time. And then the birds come and eat their flesh. The Bible says in Jeremiah 25, verse 33, And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth, and they shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. And there's a reason for that because when Jesus Christ comes, He's going to take His believers to heaven but the wicked are going to be destroyed and their bodies are going to be on the ground and no one is coming to bury them because they're all dead and so the birds come and eat their flesh. And so this is a picture of the destruction, the devastation, and the slain of the earth being unburied on the ground. And so we want to put all of this together, what we learned on Thursday night and what we're going to learn today about what happens at Christ's coming. And so this is just a little bit of a review. The first thing that we saw was at the coming of Christ that the dead in Christ were going to be resurrected. And so we see that as our first item, that the believers are resurrected. And then the believers that are alive at that time are going to be transformed. They're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Remember that we read that the mortal must put on immortality, that corruption must put on incorruption. And then we saw that the wicked who are living are consumed by the brightness of His coming. They are slain and left laying on the ground. And then something that we haven't talked about yet And that is that the wicked who are dead are going to remain in the grave. And I want to show that to you now. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the thousand years of the Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. That's going to be page 1423 if you have one of those seminar Bibles. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him in and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until when? Until the thousand years were finished, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. And so here we see this description of what it's going to be like 
at the coming of Christ. And I want you to notice there some of the things that were talked about. First of all, it talks about this angel coming down who has the key to the bottomless pit. There's this great chain and this angel taking a hold of Satan and uh, Satan is chained and he is bound for a thousand years in this bottomless pit. And I'd like to talk for a moment about this bottomless pit. If you go back to the original manuscript for the New Testament, which was written in Greek, you'll discover that this phrase, bottomless pit, was translated from the word obusos, and that means bottomless pit, and it can also mean the deep. And I want to show you that. So turn with me to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 1. And I'd like to read to you what it says in verse 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the, what? The deep. Now that word there is a Hebrew word, but it is a transliteration of the Greek word, that was abusos. And so here we see from the Word of God that the abusos, the bottomless pit, or the deep, are the exact same thing. And so when we're looking in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and we see that the earth was formless and void, what's this talking about? This is talking about the earth before creation, right? And so we see that when the devil is chained to this bottomless pit, He is going to be just simply chained to the earth. And I want to show you this, so turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 4. That's going to be page 871 of that seminar Bible. Jeremiah chapter 4. And I'd like you to notice what it says starting in... uh, Well, we're just going to look at one verse. Verse... 23. Well, we're going to look we're going to look at more than 23, but that's where we're going to start. It says, "I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void." What does that sound like? That sounds like what we just read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, doesn't it? So do you think that this is talking about the earth before creation? Well, let's keep reading and see what it says. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of heaven had fled. Now hold on a second. This is not talking about before creation, is it? Because it's talking about no man and it's talking about the birds having fled. And so obviously this is after creation. But let's keep reading. It says, I beheld and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness and all its cities were broken down at the what? At the presence of the Lord by His fierce anger. And so what we're seeing here is that at the coming of Christ, when He takes His people to heaven and He destroys the wicked, there's going to be such devastation on the earth that it's going to look just like it did before creation. 
That's pretty uh, severe devastation, isn't it? And uh, we see that that there is the birds that are flying around, and and we see that that's what we read earlier that they will come and eat those bodies. And so here we see this picture of a completely uh, desolate earth, a devastated earth where everything is broken down during that thousand years. Now, you might ask the question, well, where are the saints during that thousand years? But you'll remember on Thursday night that we talked about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, which says that, that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and thus, or in this way, we will always be with the Lord. And the Lord is going to take His people to heaven with Him up into the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And so they are going to be there during that thousand years. Now, the earth is going to be desolate at that time, and it talks about the devil being chained, right? Now, I want you to remember that story in Mark chapter 5, I think it's verse 3, where there was this man who they called the demoniac. Remember him? It was a man who was filled with a demon and they tried to chain him. You remember that? And what happened? He just broke the chains, right? So we need to realize what we've talked about many times already in Unlock Revelation, and that is what is real and literal in the Old Testament is figurative or symbolic in the New Testament and specifically in the book of Revelation. So when this talks about the devil being chained, it's not a literal chain that is holding him here. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is that? I'd like you to turn with me back to... Revelation chapter 20, and let's look at verse 3 again. Revelation chapter 20, and notice what it says. It's talking about the devil here, and it says that uh, the angel cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should not what? Deceive the nations any longer. And so what we see here is rather than this being a literal chain that is holding the devil, this is the chains of circumstance. And what is the circumstance? That all of the wicked have been destroyed, they are dead, the righteous are gone to heaven, and so the devil doesn't have anyone to deceive. And so he's chained by his circumstances. He can't deceive anyone during this thousand years. In fact, this is God giving Satan a 1,000 year time out. He has got a thousand years to look around to see the devastation that he is responsible for and he has got this time to perhaps repent. Right? God would desire that all would repent and he has this time to examine his theories, his ways of thinking, the things that he's been doing to see if he could change his way. And so therefore that thousand years, he's going to be chained by those circumstances because there's no one there to deceive. 
Well, notice what it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And so here we see that at the coming of Christ, the living wicked are going to be destroyed, but the wicked, the ungodly who are in the grave are going to remain in the grave for that thousand years. Now let me show you that. Notice what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 28. He said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, when you read that one verse by itself, that sounds like it's happening all at the same time, doesn't it? It sounds like at the coming of Christ, the righteous are going to be taken to heaven and the wicked are going to be raised to receive their reward of condemnation. But remember, when we're studying the Bible, we've got to put it all together, don't we? And we've got to see that there are actually two separate resurrections that are being spoken of. There's the resurrection of the righteous who are going to be raised at the time of the coming of Christ. And then there's going to be the resurrection of the wicked who are going to be raised at the end of that thousand years. Now let me show you that on the way of a timeline. And if you see on the timeline here on the left, there are two things that happen at the coming of Christ. You have the resurrection of the dead. You have the translation of those who are in Christ who are alive. They're caught up in the air. They go with the Lord to heaven. And also, uh, Satan is bound and the wicked that are living are destroyed. And then you have that thousand years. And then we see that the wicked are raised from the dead and Satan at that time is loose. Now let's look at this a little further. Look with me in verse 5. Revelation chapter 5. And notice what it says. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And so here we see it from the Word of God that there is two separate resurrections, right? And during this time, the devil is chained to this earth. He's not permitted to deceive anyone because there's no one alive for him to deceive. And so... At the end of that thousand years, then he will be loosed. But notice verse 7. It says, when the thousand years were expired, then Satan will be released from his prison. And I ask you the question, why would he be released from his prison after that thousand years? Well, there's a very good reason for that. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verse 8. It says that He will go out and deceive the nations who are in the four corners of the earth. And so the reason that He is released from His prison or His chain of circumstances is because now the wicked are raised up and now, guess what? He can go out and deceive once again. In other words, He's got His old job back, right? And He's going to go back out and deceive. And the Bible says there in verse 8, that He will deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, we've talked about this quite a bit, but remember, what's real and literal in the Old Testament is spiritual and figurative in the book of Revelation. 
If you go back to the Old Testament, you will see that there was a real literal place called Gog, and there was a real literal king called Magog. And so if we take that and we see that that was real in the Old Testament, but now we have to spiritualize it, now we have to symbolize it, and what that is indicating simply is that these are all the enemies of God. And so the devil is going to go out to deceive them and to prepare them for battle. And what's this? This is the battle of Armageddon. And notice what it says in verse 9. Here's the battle. They went up on the earth, on the breadth of the earth, and they surrounded what? The camp of the saints and the city of God, right? Now, I have a question for you. Where did that beloved city come from? Because the last that we read was that the saints were going up to heaven and the city was in heaven, right? But now we see that at the end of that thousand years that that city is going to come down out of heaven and is going to come down to the earth. And so we see at the end of that thousand years that the new Jerusalem with the saints in it is going to come back to the earth. The wicked are raised up the devil deceives them into thinking that they can take the city. Because after all, there's more of them than there is of us, right? And so they're going to come and try and take that city. And there are reasons why they want to do that. I'm not going to get into that today. But before we go any further, I want to answer another question that possibly people have. And that question is, well, okay, the saints are going to heaven for a thousand years, but what are we going to be doing during that thousand years. And I'd like you to notice what Revelation 20, verse 4 says. It says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Right? What is this saying? That judgment is committed to them during this thousand years. Now, I want to remind you of something that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. Notice what he says in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then in verse 3 he says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Right? So when do the saints judge angels and when do they judge the world? It's during this time, this thousand years, that judgment is committed to the saints. Now let me just say this, that it's not that the saints are deciding who is saved and who is not. Because remember, this must have already been accomplished. It has to be accomplished before Christ comes, right? Because how does He know who to take to heaven with Him? And how does He know who to destroy? So that judgment has already taken place. And so this is some other kind of judgment that we are going to be involved in. And I suspect that it's going to be very eye-opening. Because what we are going to be judging is not whether anyone is saved or not, but what we're going to be judging is whether God was righteous in His determination of who should be in heaven and who should be destroyed. And so all of God's judgments are written in the record books of heaven And those books are going to be opened and we are going to have the opportunity 
to examine those books. And I imagine there's going to be some people who are going to have some pretty big questions, right? Like, for instance, there's a guy by the name of Stephen. And the last thing that Stephen knew is that he was being stoned to death and there was a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus who was standing there holding the coats of those who were stoning, giving his approval. And now Stephen's in heaven and he looks over and he sees the Apostle Paul who was Saul of Tarsus and he says, hey, what's he doing here? Right? Because the last thing he saw was Saul was consenting to his murder. And so we're going to have to be able to examine the books. And then when Stephen looks through that, he's going to see, oh, after I was killed, God actually was able to transform his heart. He became this great apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul is responsible for millions, if not billions of people being in heaven. And do you think Stephen's going to be okay with that? Oh, I think so. And then there might be other people who we might be looking around and uh, someone might say, well, where's Pastor Rod? I thought for sure he was going to be here. He seemed like a pretty righteous dude, right? And, but then they go and examine the books and they say, oh man, this guy was just a whitewashed tomb. He looked good on the outside. He claimed to have a form of godliness but denied the power of it to change his life. And so God is righteous in not allowing him to get into heaven. And we are going to have the privilege of seeing that. Let me show you that. Turn with me to Psalm 149. Psalm 149. That's going to be page 724 in that seminar Bible. And notice what it says starting in verse 5. The Bible says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the what? The written judgment. This honor have all the saints. Praise the Lord. And so this honor is given to all of those who make it to heaven that they are going to be able to examine the books and they are going to be able to determine that all of God's judgments, everything that God did is perfectly righteous and holy and in Him there is no darkness at all, but only light. And so they are going to have that joy. And uh, I expect that there is going to be some singing going on in heaven, isn't there? And I suspect on that day that the dead are raised and we are gathered together, that we are going to have those questions, but we are going to have them answered. Now, I'd like you to turn with me back to Revelation chapter 15. And I'd like you to notice what we're seeing here is that God doesn't keep His judgments in a bottle. God doesn't say, I'm God and you should just trust Me. But God is going to reveal every decision that He has ever made and we are going to have the opportunity to examine that and we're going to be able to see that God is righteous. Now, notice what it says in Revelation 15, starting in verse 1. 
John the Revelator says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been what? manifested so here we see at the end of the thousand years that all of the saints of god are going to be gathered together on the sea of glass having already examined the books and they're going to be able to see that the judgments of god were righteous they have all been manifested god hasn't hold anything back but he has revealed every decision that he ever made and we're going to be able to see that all those that are made it to heaven deserve Well, nobody deserves it, right? But they are there because God is able to change their heart and to get them there. And those who are not were those that refused to accept His gracious offer. And so I'd like you to notice then what it says in Revelation 20. Go back there and notice what it says. Let's read verse 8 again. And uh, will go out to deceive the nations, just talking about Satan, in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And so here we see Satan going out to once again deceive. And then notice what it says in verse 9. It says, And they went upon the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And so here we see that now the written judgment is being executed, isn't it? Everyone in heaven has had the opportunity to see that the wicked would pollute the universe if they were allowed and sin would rise up again. But now when they come back to the earth and they see that the wicked have been raised from the dead, and none of them have repented. Satan during that thousand years had that opportunity, but as soon as he gets the opportunity, once again, he goes back out to deceive, and now they're coming to try and take the city, and so the execution of the judgment takes place, and they are destroyed by fire from God coming out of heaven. And in fact, if you go back to Revelation chapter 21, It says that right after this, then a new heavens and a new earth. So God is going to recreate the world after this point. And that's what happens ultimately after that fire comes down from heaven. Now notice what it says in Revelation 20, verse 10. It says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. And then in Revelation 20, verse 14, it says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, the lake of fire or hellfire, I believe, is one of the most misunderstood teachings in the church today. And I believe that's true because of that concept that we talked about on Thursday night. And that is 
dualism, right? That, that somehow the body and the soul are separate entities, and when the body dies, it's not really you, that's not the real you, but the body dies and the real you goes to heaven. That's the popular teaching today. But what's that really saying? That's really saying that you're immortal, right? And we flushed that out on Thursday night and we saw that God is the only one that has immortality, but we can receive immortality if we surrender our hearts to Him and at the second coming, when He raises those from the dead and transforms the others, then they will receive immortality. And so I want to talk about this in way of some questions. Today we're going to focus especially on this subject of the lake of fire and we want to try and answer what it all is by attempting to answer four questions. And those questions are, where is hell? When is hell? How long is hell? And why is there a hell? Those are some pretty good questions, aren't they? And I think by answering those four questions, we will have a much better understanding of hell, fire, and hell in particular. So let's start with the question, where is hell? And I'd like you to notice here in Revelation chapter 20, we just read this, but let's look at verse 9 and 10. It says, they went up on the what? The breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and what? Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And so here we see that hell fire that comes down from God out of heaven happens where? On the earth. That's right, because it said they went up upon the breadth of the earth, right? So where is hell? It's on the earth. Well, notice what it says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. It says, if the righteous will be recompensed, that means rewarded, if the righteous are going to be rewarded on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? Now think about that for a minute. When do the righteous receive their reward? At the coming of Jesus, when He raises them from the dead, the living who are in Christ are transformed. Corruption puts on incorruption. Mortal puts on immortality. And where does that happen? On the earth, right? They're raised from their graves. And so if the righteous receive their reward on the earth, then this verse says, well, where are the wicked going to receive their reward? On the earth as well. And when they come up against the city of God, they're going to get their reward. Amen? Notice uh, Ezekiel 28, verse 18. And we've talked about this verse already. And we, we saw how it had a dual fulfillment, right? Because if you go back and read this verse, you see that it's talking about a real literal king, the king of Tyre, but as you read through this verse, you realize that it's talking about more than an earthly person. Because remember that Satan always works through other instrumentalities, right? And so this is ultimately talking about Satan. And notice what it says. It says, You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes where? 
upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So here we see that even Satan himself is going to be destroyed. He's going to receive his reward upon the earth, right? By the way, in case you're thinking this, that doesn't mean inside the earth or under the earth. Because we saw already it says upon the earth, right? Okay, so let's go to the next question. When is hell? I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Peter. If you still have your Bibles open to Revelation, just go back a couple of pages before Revelation chapter 1 and you will find 2 Peter. That's going to be page 1397 of your seminar Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'd like you to notice what it says starting in verse 5. John the Revelator says to us, For this they willingly forget that by the word... I'm sorry, I said John the Revelator. It's Peter, isn't it? For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now... What's that word? Preserved by the same word are... What's that next word? reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly. And so here we see that that hell fire is reserved for a certain time, isn't it? And when is that? That's at the end of the thousand years when the wicked are raised, they're deceived by Satan, and they come against the city of God, right? And so judgment is already accomplished, but that execution of the judgment is reserved and hell and hell fire are reserved for that time. So what does that mean to us? That means that hell is not burning right now, isn't it? It should be pretty clear. Notice what it says in Job 21, verse 3. For the wicked are, there's that word again, reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. Isn't that interesting? They shall be brought out from where? From the grave, right? They're going to be brought out and that day is reserved for them to have that judgment executed on them. Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. Notice what Jesus said. In the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. You remember we looked at this parable and that tares are representing the wicked and the wheat is representing the righteous. But he goes on to say, as therefore the tares are gathered and what? Burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. And so this is a pretty clear picture, isn't it? That not only is hell not burning now, but the wicked are reserved for that day of judgment. It happens at the end of that thousand years when fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. And Jesus says that the tares are not burned until the end of the world. And so then the next question is, well, how long is hell? Turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you've got Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, then just go back one page. And uh, Malachi only has four chapters. And so we're going to be in chapter 4. And I'd like you to notice what it says starting in verse 1. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. That's page 1107 in that seminar Bible. 
It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall what? Burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be what? Ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. And so here we see that when that fire comes from God out of heaven, what's it going to do? It's going to burn them up, right? It's going to turn them into ashes. And so how long is hell? Until they're burned up. That's right. Do you see that? Because once something is turned to ashes, there's no longer a need for that fire, is there? In fact, I want to show you this in another place. Turn with me to Psalm 37. It's going to be page 641 in your seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verses 9 through 11. The psalmist says to us, For evildoers shall be what? Cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be what? It shall be no more. Indeed, you look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And so here we see that the Bible teaches that the wicked are going to be destroyed, doesn't it? They will be cut off. Notice what it says in verse 20. Psalm 37, still verse 20. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. What are we seeing here? We're seeing that they're destroyed. They're cut off. They become like smoke. They vanish away. You look for their place and it is no more. The Bible teaches very simply that the wicked are destroyed. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is everlasting life burning in hell. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says the wages of sin is death. Right? And the Bible calls this fire that comes down from God out of heaven the second death. In other words, this is a death that you don't come back from. Remember what we talked about already on Thursday night. That death is referred to in the Bible as sleep, right? Because it's an unconscious state. But that first death you can come back from if you have surrendered your heart to the Lord if you've asked Him to be your Lord and Savior, to forgive you of your sins, if His law is written in your mind and in your heart, He promises that He will raise you from the dead. But this death is the second death because those wicked died already. If they weren't dead when He came, they died at that point. Uh, before that, then they slept in the grave for that thousand years and now they're raised again and this is the second death. This is the death that there's no coming back from. There's no resurrection from this death, right? In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to everlasting burning in hell. Is that what it says? No, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Right? The Bible is very clear that broad is the way to destruction. And destruction is total annihilation, right? There's no coming back from this second death. And we see that again in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not burn in hell forever. Is that what it says? No, shall not perish. The Bible is very clear that the wicked are going to perish. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, Paul says, For many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Over and over again, the Bible tells us the results or the reward of the wicked. And I have given you just a small number of verses that show that. Remember, if you're going to study the Bible and it's truly inspired by God, it all has to be in agreement. And so we have to take all of these verses and look at them. And I'm, I've only given you a few. But when you leave here today, you're going to get a handout. And there's one full page in that handout of verses that talk about what happens to you when you die if you are of the righteous group or you are of the wicked, either one. It says that those wicked are consumed. They vanish away. They are destroyed. They are cut off again and again. Uh, they're made into ashes. And you're going to get that handout to show you even more of those verses. But let's just look at a few of them again here. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the fate of the wicked is death, right? The wages of sin is death, that verse says. Luke chapter 13, verse 3 says they shall perish. Malachi 4 says they will be burned up. Psalm 37 says they will be utterly consumed. Malachi 4.3 says that they will be turned to ashes. Obadiah 16 says they will be as though they had never been. And Isaiah 47 says that Satan will be utterly destroyed. Pretty clear, isn't it? Well, let's consider for a moment what the popular teaching is today. There are many Bible teachers who teach that when you die, you go either straight to heaven or straight to hell. Am I right? That's the teaching. And when you go to a funeral, everybody goes to heaven, don't they? Yes. But let's seriously talk about this logic of this view, or maybe I should say illogic of this view, right? First of all, think about this for a minute. According to this popular view, the devil is in charge of hell. Now, do you think that God is going to give the devil what he wants? Because he's been in rebellion for 6,000, 7,000 years now, right? And so do you think that God is going to allow the devil to be in charge of anything? Even hell? I don't think so. No. No, He is not going to be there doing what He loves to do for all eternity and making sure that everybody there burns evenly, right? Now, think about this way too. If that popular view is true, 
that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell? Where do you think that Cain would have gone after murdering his brother Abel? If that view is true, he would have gone straight to hell, right? That means that Cain, for one murder, would be burning in hell 6,000 years longer than Hitler. Does that sound fair? Does that sound like something that a righteous God, a loving God would do? I don't think so. Think about this for a moment. Think about that 22-year-old man who never gave his heart to the Lord, who always went his own way. And he was out drinking and driving and got in an accident and died. And the next instant, he is in severe pain, burning for out all of eternity. Not burning for an hour or a day or a year or ten years, but a hundred trillion years later, he's still burning for 22 years of life. Does that sound like something that a loving God would do? I don't think so, friends. Those who teach this doctrine of demons are going to be held responsible for the thousands of souls that have rejected God because they see Him as being bankrupt of love and reason and common decency. The devil has succeeded in leading God's people to believe and to teach another doctrine that paints God in the attributes of Satan himself. It is a doctrine that the Scriptures do not teach. We read this quote the other night by Clark Pennock of the Master of Divinity School in Canada. And he says, anthropological dualism. That's that idea that the body and the soul are separate entities and it's not really you that died, the body died, but you go straight to heaven. He says this, anthropological dualism has done such serious harm in weakening our blessed hope of Christ's appearing and distorting our understanding of the world to come. We read that the other night, didn't we? But he went on to say this, Worst of all, it has given rise to the sadistic teaching that God makes the wicked suffer unending conscious torment in hell, which has been such a burden to the Christian conscience and an unnecessary offense to many seekers. You catch that? A burden to the Christian conscience. Now, I'm just going to say this. There are many godly people, God-fearing people, who believe this popular teaching that when you die, you go straight to hell and you burn forever. And I am not talking about anyone who believes that. I don't have anything bad to say about that. Because remember what I told you. I used to believe that too, right? I used to teach that. But now I just feel like I've understood the Scriptures a little better and see a loving God, right? A God that would not do those kinds of things. I just believe there are so many people that have that popular view just simply because they haven't studied it out, right? But if you have never looked into this and you truly believe that God tortures people for all of eternity, then what do you do with that? You just have to kind of tuck that in the back of your brain and you just have to say, well, I don't understand that, but I'm just going to try and believe that God's a righteous guy, right? That's what you have to do. And then what happens? 
that leads to two or even more really big problems. Because if you really believe that, then what we start to think is the only people who are going to go to hell are the ones who are really, 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 really bad, right? And that's why even when the worst scoundrel on the planet dies, they put him in heaven, right? Because if, if God is going to torture for trillions of years, then they must have really been bad. That's one view. And then the other thing that could happen is then you start thinking of some place like purgatory where you can kind of, you know, you messed up the first time, but now you've got a second chance and you can try and work your way back so that you can get into heaven. That kind of thinking just results in all kinds of negative things. Or it results in people serving God out of fear. For instance, if you look at Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in that sermon he talks about hell and burning forever and he paints this graphic picture of people being tortured for all of eternity. And then he says, does anybody want to give their heart to Jesus? You can imagine that everybody's raising their hand, right? Because who wants to do that? But then it causes people to serve God out of fear rather than love. Friends, our God is a God of love, right? He's not going to do something like that. Notice what John Stott said. He said, as a committed evangelical, my question must be and is not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? And in order to answer this question, we need to survey the biblical matter afresh and open our minds and not just our hearts to the possibility that Scripture points to annihilation and that the doctrine of the eternal conscious torment has to yield to the superior authority of the Scriptures. Oh, I like that verse, right? Yield to the superior authority of the Scriptures. Isn't that what we've been talking about through this whole seminar? That we want to allow the Word of God to explain to us what God is trying to teach us. And perhaps the strongest scriptural argument against that eternal conscious torment in hell is the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Right? The Bible says that He paid our penalty in full, which is the second death. Right? Romans chapter 6, verse 10 says, the death He died, He died to sin once and for all. Friends, if you believe in an eternally burning hell as the reward of the wicked, then Jesus didn't pay your price. Because Jesus is not burning in hell today. Right? Jesus died that separation from God, that second death. And when He began to die, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, He said that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto the point of death. And he began to sweat great drops of blood. And when he died on the cross, he died a lot quicker than you normally would. The crucifixion was meant to be a very long, painful death. But when they went to go and break his legs, he was already dead, right? That is because the weight of the sins of the world crushed out his life. He died from sorrow from the sorrow of sin, from the shame of sin. He died that death 
that the wicked deserve the death that there's no coming back from. But because He's God, death could not hold Him. Right? And that fire that comes down from God out of heaven on the wicked is simply designed to consume them, burn them up, so that all sin and sinners is done away with forever. Right? It's wiped off the face of the earth. The earth has to be purified. And you'll understand this analogy. When you are baptized, you're baptized in water and fire, aren't you? You go down into the watery grave and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, which is described at the day of Pentecost as tongues of fire, right? Well, the earth has to be cleansed as well. It was cleansed by water in the flood and it will be cleansed by fire at this point in time at the end of the thousand years. Now, I understand that there are some obscure texts in the Bible that seem to be saying something else. For example, you might ask, well, what about that story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? If you look at that story, it sounds like a picture of hell. But you have to study that out and you have to realize what Jesus is talking about. And if you have a question about that, write it down. We'll talk about it. But we have to take those obscure texts Remember the fence posts? We have to take the weight of evidence and then we have to take those one or two or three verses that seem to be saying something else and we have to move them in line with the rest. And you can do that in that story of the rich man and Lazarus and the others that may be there. So what does the Bible mean when it uses the expression everlasting destruction or eternal fire? Well, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Job. Go to Revelation chapter 1 and then turn back one page. Jude is just a one-chapter book. And notice what Jude says to us in verse 7. He says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner, to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of what? Eternal fire. That's right. Now turn back with me just three or so pages in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2. And notice what Peter says to us in verse 6. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 6 says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what? Into ashes, condemned them to the destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. And so here we see that Sodom and Gomorrah suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. Right? But what did that eternal fire do? It turned them to ashes. Now, is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? No. So it was an eternal fire, not in its length, but in its extent, right? Imagine this. You have a fire pit in your backyard and you throw a bunch of wood in there and you light it on fire. How long is it going to burn? Till the wood is gone, right? It's turned to ash. And the results of that are eternal. You can't put that ash back together and put it back into a log, can you? And so when we see eternal fire, it's talking not about the length of it, but it's talking about the results. It is an eternal fire 
that there's no coming back from. Notice this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained what? Eternal redemption. Does that mean that God is going to be redeeming us for all of eternity? No, it means that the results of his redemption is eternal. It lasts forever, right? Isn't that what John 3.16 says? Everlasting life. It is the results of it are eternal. How about this one? Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 2 says, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of what? Eternal judgment. Does that mean that God is going to be judging us for all of eternity? No, it means the results of His judgment have eternal consequences. You're either in heaven with God or you are burned up and turned into ashes. But the results are eternal, aren't they? The results of redemption and judgment will be everlasting. And the same is true with an eternal fire. It is the results of that fire that are eternal. When the job is done, it's over. Right? And there is no resurrection for the wicked after that point. God is not going to give the wicked some non-combustible body that they can burn forever, right? That's what He would have to do in order for them to burn for all eternity. Eternal fire, according to the Bible. And remember, we have to let the Bible interpret itself, don't we? An eternal fire turns to ashes. That's its purpose. It is going to turn the wicked into ashes. And so an eternal fire is one whose effects or results are eternal, And everlasting punishment is one punishment whose effects or results are eternal. Notice what the Bible says, Matthew 25, verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting burning in hell. Is that what it says? No, everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so everlasting punishment is not everlasting punishing. You you understand? There's a big difference there, isn't there? The punishment is death. And the punishment is eternal. It is everlasting. There is no resurrection for those who are destroyed by that fire that comes down from God out of heaven. Jesus is very clear on this. Notice what He says in Matthew 10.28. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What did Jesus say is going to happen to the wicked? They're going to be destroyed. Right? Fear Him who can destroy. That's what He's saying. So what about this Bible expression, unquenchable fire? Notice what Mark chapter 9, verse 43 says. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Right? Notice what Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27 says. Then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be what? Quenched. It shall not be quenched. And if you go back to the Old Testament, to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, Verse 19, it says this, 
Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. So here we see that that eternal fire burned up Jerusalem, didn't it? Now, is Jerusalem still burning today? No. So how can we call that an unquenchable fire? All this is saying is that a fire that God starts, no man can put out. It's unquenchable until it serves the purpose that God intended, right? And if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 20, notice what it says in verse 47 and 48. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree in you. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. And so all this is saying is that a fire that God starts, nobody can put out, and it's going to go until it does what it's supposed to do. So an unquenchable fire is one that no hand can put out. Now, I'd like you to notice with me what it says in Isaiah chapter 34. Turn there. It's going to be page 822 in your seminar Bible. Isaiah chapter 34. And notice what it says starting in verse 5. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven, indeed it shall come down on Edom, and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood, it is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild oxen shall come down with them, and the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust saturated with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion, its streams shall be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. And so here we see this fire that is unquenchable, right? But let me ask you a question. Is Edom still burning today? No, it's not. You see, friends, the confusion for many comes with that word forever, doesn't it? What does it mean when something burns forever? Well, I would like you to notice that forever can mean a definite period of time in the Bible. You understand that? Forever can be a definite period of time. Now, let me show you that. Notice in Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, that it says, I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me for how long? Forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So where was Jonah talking about being forever? In the belly of the fish, right? Now, it probably seemed like it, didn't it? Notice what 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22 says. This is Samuel's mother saying, I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there for how long? Forever, right? And then she goes on to say, therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So when you see in the Bible that it sometimes says forever, it could refer to a full duration of some specific circumstance, right? 
In Jonah's case, it was while he was in the belly of the fish. In, in Samuel's case, he served the Lord his entire life, didn't he? So, now we have to answer that question, why is there a hell? Notice in Matthew 25, verse 41, it says, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Did you know that hell was not prepared for man? God did not have that intention. God desires that all would repent and turn to Him, right? And so, it wasn't meant for us. Notice what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4 says. That God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then when you go to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, it says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God, therefore turn and live. God doesn't want anyone to have to burn up in hell. It was not meant for man. And then Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21 says, For the Lord shall rise and bring to pass what? His strange act. There's one Bible translation that says His unusual act. Why would it be unusual or strange for God to destroy the wicked? Because God is love. Right? God doesn't want that any should perish. And so it's a strange act for God to destroy the wicked. It's not something that He wants to do. That's why it says in Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart churns within me. Friends, God loves the sinner, but He hates sin. And why does He hate sin? Because of what it does to the person, right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. And the Bible is all about salvation, isn't it? God wants us to be saved. He wants you to come so close to Him that all of your impurities, your defects, your sin is burned off. But He doesn't want you to have to be burned up. Right? He wants you to be changed. But notice this, that if we allow our pride, our stubbornness, our guilt to keep us from surrendering to God, then I've got news for you. Heaven would be hell. Wouldn't it? Heaven with all of its moral perfection, all of its beauty, would be terrible for someone who is wicked. Someone who doesn't want that, right? And so God is actually doing the just thing and the merciful thing by destroying sinners in the end. We have to remember that the purpose of the lake of fire is to bring an end to sin. Nahum chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 says, What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. God is going to destroy the wicked. And we don't have to have a reminder of that forever and ever, right? And sin is not going to rise up a second time because sin and sinners were going to have been destroyed. And when this happens, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, 
Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Huh? Praise God. Revelation 21, verse 4 says, And God shall wipe away all their tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. Friends, how can we possibly reconcile this promise when there would be, according to the popular teaching, people burning in hell forever? God says that He is going to do away with pain and suffering and sorrow, right? That includes the wicked. The promise is sure. There will be no more crying or pain or death or sorrow for the former things have passed away. Now let me remind you of what we've learned here. Jesus said the soul and the body will be destroyed in hell. David said that the wicked shall perish and be consumed by smoke. Malachi said that the day that comes will be like an oven that's going to burn them up and turn them into ashes. Peter said that they're going to be like ashes. Jude said that they're going to be totally destroyed. And in Revelation it says it's the second death. You know, even though we can find a few obscure verses that seem to be saying something else, we cannot build our Bible doctrine around those few verses. We have got to take the weight of evidence. Now, I'd like to close today by telling you a story. There was a woman who walked into a grocery store one Saturday morning. And she saw a round table there with chairs around it and a few people sitting there. And one of the men that was there at that table saw her come in and he quickly got up and he went over to her and he said, Ma'am, I'm really sorry, but we're closed today. I must have forgot to lock the door. And so the women said, okay. And she started to turn around to walk away. And then the man said, well, hold on a minute. He said, we're having a Bible study right now. Would you be interested in staying and studying with us? And she looked at her watch and she said, yeah, I've got a little bit of time. And so she stayed and they were studying this exact topic that we're talking about today. And when they got done, that woman began to cry. And the man said to her, I'm so sorry if I offended you. And the woman said, oh, no, sir, you have not offended me at all. You have comforted me today. She said, you see. I have one son, an only son, and I raised him up to be a godly man, but he never would follow the Lord. He was always making bad choices and going the wrong way. And just a couple of weeks ago, he was running from the law. As they were chasing him, he ran into something and he was instantly killed. And I have been struggling with the loss of my son, but what made it worse is right after that, I went to church one morning and a couple of the ladies said to me, we're so sorry that your son is burning in hell. We will be praying for him. And the woman said, today you have given me assurance that there is a loving God and that He would not allow my son, even though he was not a righteous man, that He would not allow him to burn in hell forever. You have given me a picture of a God that I have never seen before. Friends, is that the kind of God that you want to serve? Or would you want to serve a God who allows someone for 
20 years of indiscretion burns for all eternity. Whom are you going to choose to serve? Are you going to serve that God of love? Is that your desire today? If it is, I'd like you to stand with me now and let's pray. Oh, loving Father, Lord, perhaps we have seen You in a light today like we've never seen before. We've talked about a good and gracious God. But today we've seen it from the Word of God itself. We've seen that that popular teaching of demons is just painting a picture of Satan rather than a picture of You. Lord, we love You. We love You because You first loved us. And Lord, from this moment on, we want to surrender our hearts to You. Not out of fear, but out of love. And Lord, we offer up our silent prayers to You. Asking You to forgive us for our ignorance of thinking such a thing against such a loving and wonderful God. And Lord, that You would continue the work that You have been doing through this Unlock Revelation Seminar Continue to open up our eyes to more and more of Bible truth. Help us to understand it. Help us to hear it. But most importantly, Lord, help us to apply it to our lives and help us to share this truth with others so that they can come out of darkness. Lord, prepare us for the day of the coming of Jesus because we want to be a part of that first resurrection. We want to be a part of that group that's going to go and have the honor and the privilege of looking at Your judgments. And we are going to be able to stand on that sea of glass and say, heaven was cheap enough. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. Guide our hearts and minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.